Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means the last radio hour of the week. The Hillsdale Dialogue is upon us. My guest, Dr. Larry Arn, joins us from Michigan. Today we are talking about a Frenchman. I don't know that we've, I guess we talked about Rousseau once, so maybe we have talked about a Frenchman before. A man known only by his last name, Montaigne. He lived from 1533 to 1592. He's considered by many to be the originator of the essay as a form. His book of essays, really three books of essays, written between 1572 and 1592, uh, were extensively reworked by the French statesman. He was a statesman. He was also an elected official, the mayor of Bordeaux. And when he died in, I think, 1592, he was still working on them. He constantly revised them. And Montaigne wrote an essay on friendship in the first of his three books. It was essay number 28. And we begin with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. Our series on friendship are the most recent ones in the Hillsdale Dialogue, iTunes, Spotify, Podcast Network, and all for Hugh for Hillsdale. Dr. Arn, uh, prior to this week, how much time have you spent with Montaigne over the years? A little, little. uh, uh, Some. Uh, he's not my favorite. Uh, I, I, I'd like to ask a question. Why did you pick him? Oh, because I wrote my senior thesis on this essay at Harvard. Uh, and and I, had to, uh, I had a great scholar who then left Harvey Mansfield's direction by the name of John Gibbons, and we were looking around for something. He said, nobody reads Montaigne anymore. Why don't you read Montaigne? I keep it next to my bedside. And the reason he loved it, the reason Gibbons loved it, is that you Straussians pay very close attention to the order in which things are written. Mm-hmm. And there are three books. They're all, book one has 57 essays, book two, 37, book three, 13, making the middle essays 29, 19, and 7. Uh, the Number 19 in the second book is on freedom of conscience. Number seven in the third book is on the disadvantage of greatness. And number 29, which follows the essay on friendship, is empty. It's blank. Uh, and so Gibbons made me think a lot about that, and I decided I'm not going to be a Straussian. I'm not smart enough to be a Straussian, but I sure did like the essay on friendship. So we went there to Cicero and to Montaigne, and I find it interesting in our series because we were talking about, well, let me begin with what he says. He says, he quotes Aristotle, that legislators have had more care for friendship than for justice. I don't recall you telling me that about Aristotle. Uh, well, that's because you weren't paying attention. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of the most important arguments in Aristotle, and indeed, in some sense, the structure of the Nicomachean Ethics is, is set by the relationship between justice and friendship. Uh, let, let me rehearse, not for the audience they will remember, but for my colleague here, uh, that, uh, the, uh, justice is a moral virtue, it's the only moral virtue gets an entire book of its own. And Aristotle never refers to it as beautiful, as calon, as having the ultimate uh, superior quality. Uh, but it, he talks about it a lot. 
And, you know, he does say that one part of justice, just when it's just done for its own sake, is, uh, is, uh, is, 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 I can't remember the phrase now, but something as beautiful as, no, as, as, uh, uh, appealing is the morning sun. But then the rest of the book about justice is all about fixing stuff, right? Uh, you know, courts of justice, right? Is this beautiful, what's going on in the Supreme Court that we talked about last week, right? They're fixing a bunch of problems, maybe. And that's what they're trying to do. And that's not the most beautiful human activity, whereas friendship is the most beautiful human association. Well, Professor, I, I'm going to defend myself because I was paying attention and I know that Aristotle valued friendship more than justice. But what Montaigne said is that legislators have had more care for friendship than for justice. Aristotle says that. I thought Aristotle said friendship is a higher value for the individual and the philosopher than justice, but that legislators really have to worry a lot more about justice than friendship, don't they? Uh, well, uh, Aristotle says, uh, there's a curiosity about that that's really great. Uh, Aristotle says that friendships bind cities together. Uh, you know, there are kinds of friendship, right? And, and just in Montaigne, he's got all these kinds of friendship. And uh, he's very different from Aristotle, by the way, in some ways I'll mention. But uh, uh, he, he, in Aristotle, the ultimate kind is people of full virtue of excellent character and intellect, of courage and moderation and justice, uh, forming a bond, overlooking at the same thing, overloving those things. And that bond is a complete bond. And, of course, it's only for a few. Uh, toward the end of the ethics, Aristotle says that the highest human activity is the immediate beholding of ultimate beautiful things contemplation, and that it's a transporting activity, and that it can, no one can help with that except a friend, he says, right? So now, on the one hand, then, it's a very private thing among the most worthy, and on the other hand, it binds cities together. Well, the reason for that is, you know, it's a very, it's, it's a lovely teaching, right? It's, uh, the reason for that is, first of all, friends aren't thinking about what they get or whether they got the right amount with other friends. They're thinking about what they can give this person who is really another me or not really that. That's, that's more like Montaigne, a servant of the same things of which I am a servant. You, you, you just hit it. That's what Montaigne says. It's different. By the way, I spent 45 years stopping using Montaigne and then I just finally gave in because everybody else except you says Montaigne. And I so now I'm going back to Montaigne. Yeah. Uh, he says, you asked me why I loved him. It is because it was he, it was I. He's talking about a very specific friendship that is not uh, with uh, <laughs> de Baudier. He's not talking about something that can be easy replicated, right? He's talking about something that is very, very rare. So legislators can't really aim at it, can they? Yeah, well... He, he uh, you know, he says only one. You can only yes. have one friend at a time. Aristotle doesn't say that. I agree. It's, yeah. it's rare. And, you know, the, the limits on friendship in Aristotle are practical limits. Uh, it's rare for people to reach that state of virtue. Uh, their time uh, is limited, right? The time they can spend with people. So 
we can't spend a lot of time with a lot of people. We're having to think about that right now because we're talking about the strategy of the college going forward. And, you know, things have been going pretty well at Hillsdale College, and we can grow if we want to. But we've decided that there's to reinforce the view we've long had. There's a limit on how much bigger the college can get. And it can get bigger, but it'll still be a small college if it's to remain a liberal arts college because we have to know each other and change its nature if you don't. Uh, and so we, you know, we're figuring out what to do about that and what to do in general. Uh, but that's, you see, that limit, that's in Aristotle, but it's not fixed, it's not one. And that means it's not just one falling in love with another. And that's what Montaigne seems to me to be saying. I want to get your general impression. I want people to understand that Montaigne is not talking about uh, friendship between fathers and sons. He says that's not it. He's not talking about the love of women by men. That's not it. He's not talking about homosexual love. He's very explicit. We're not talking about that. We're talking about, well, what do you think he's talking about? Well, he's talking about this one guy, right? Uh, uh, Labodier. Yeah, Labodier, right? Uh, Died before and, he did by a number of years. And uh, he's and the affection he has for them, him, and how he's been devastated by the loss of him, and how he's lost something that cannot be replaced. And that's the way, you know, people talk about their spouses. Uh, yes. And and. The, the reason is what you get from your spouse. And here's a very important difference from Aristotle. Aristotle says that the best ma- marriages turn into friendship if, if both uh, spouses have the qualities for it to be so. And, you know, uh, your wife and my wife are worthy women. Very. And it's a privilege to know them. And... There isn't anything you can't talk to them about, right? Correct, yes. And so so that's friendship in the high sense. Now, it's interesting because it's different from friendship in another another sense. It has a bunch of material work to do. Uh, My wife has gone to the airport to pick up our younger daughter, the architect from Texas, who's coming to see us. And that's a big deal. Right, and and she's going to see the grandson for the first time. So yeah, that's work that goes on among spouses. It's not the same. And that does not. Sometimes it goes on among friends, but it normally doesn't. This is a different sort of thing, and it's a rare thing, and it's useful if you can find it. We're coming right back. Montana's on the table next week. Federalist Ten. Don't go anywhere, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. We've been talking about friendship for many weeks. We've gone through Aristotle, through Cicero. We're spending a week on Montaigne, and next week we're going to conclude with Madison's number 10. But uh, this is a, uh, an essay preceded by an essay immediately preceded. Gibbons thought this was significant on the education of children. And um, the, the, in that essay, my favorite line in Montaigne, the one I can remember all the time, the surest sign of wisdom is constant cheerfulness. He spends his whole time talking about how to raise up children, and it's not unlike the way Hillsdale goes about it, Dr. Orange. You know, he was raised, Montaigne was raised speaking Latin and writing Latin. He didn't grow up speaking French and writing French. He grew up in a Latin household. 
That shows in the essays, as I'm sure you see. Oh, yeah. So yeah. what do you make about that constant, the surest sign of wisdom is a constant cheerfulness? Well, that's, uh, yeah, let me think what I think about that. It's glib. Uh, Socrates was funny and happy. Yes. Uh, he was also very, uh, you know, he, he was a very commanding man, right? If you're around Socrates, the standards are incredibly high. And he would search your soul. Uh, the best example I know of that is uh, in, uh, in, in, the, in uh, the last dialogues of his life by Plato, and even better by Xenophon. They talk about Socrates' friends urging him to flee Athens to save his life. And he interrogates them about why that, they think that would be right. And by the time he does, he's finished, they're sort of ashamed. <laughs> you know, it, uh, and then he drinks the poison. Uh, so, yeah, Socrates was not just cheerful, but he was generally so. That's true. See, I want to say a word about this Montaigne. Montaigne yeah. um, it's more personal than the Greeks, right? It's uh, impressionistic. It's uh, it's even bordering on relativistic. I think. Oh, he's, he is the beginning of the Renaissance and the move away from God. He's a skeptic, and uh, and so it's uh, you know it's uh, in a way in a friendship that he's describing. It's just you and me, right? And and in the great friendships, it's not just you and me. It's you and me and the things that are most lovable. And so that, that you know, he loses that from the Greeks, in my opinion. But, you know, what do I know? I've led too good a life to spend a lot of time with Montaigne. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to go read the essay on solitude, because we're getting to the point where uh, you, you, it's really a second best essay. I've read these whole things, and it's the second best essay. But it is a, a I said renaissance, uh, I, I meant enlightenment. Yeah, it's yeah. the beginning of the wearing away of the good life in in favor of something else. I'm not sure what the enlightenment, how you would summarize it, but it's it's away from the highest and the best. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, my son-in-law uh, saw this and was puzzled that we were going to read Montaigne. And he said we should read Hobbes. He said because Hobbes is, you know, uh, their lives, uh, Montaigne and Hobbes, their lives overlap a little bit. Yes. But uh, Hobbes is the next generation. And in the De Keyway, the, the Citizen, that book by him, in the first book, he denigrates friendship. And see, he's, he's reducing things to self-interest, you know. And, and you could see how uh, Montaigne might be a step toward that. Uh, and I don't, you know, I, I once again assert that I'm not, no, I'm no expert on Montaigne. You're the expert on Montaigne, which is. Uh, I'm an amateur. I'm an amateur traveling by. When we come back, I'm going to tell you about the the um, seditious part of this essay, which goes back to what Ian e. Forster said: if, cho if forced to choose between my friend and my country, I hope I would have the courage to choose my friend. That's seditious, actually, and it's not true. 
And Montaigne is where that begins. And so it's sort of the limit of friendship is what we end up talking about. But don't go anywhere, America. I'm coming right back. Dr. Larry and Aaron and I are on Montaigne's first book of essays, the 28th essay of friendship. Don't go anywhere. The Hillsdale Dialogue, except the Hillsdale.edu. All things Hillsdale collected there. Dr. Larry is my guest. We're talking about friendship in this series on friendship, and we've covered Aristotle's view of it, we've covered Cicero's view of it, and now we detour into French. Uh, Montaigne, who is writing about it in 1572, I think is when it's, it's not finished until he passes away in 1592, but he works on it. Here's the, the key paragraph, Dr. Arn, and it's about Romans, and, and a little bit of background for the Steelers fan. The Gracchi brothers uh, were populists in ancient Rome long before Caesar and Sulla and Pompey and they were trying to bring down the Senate and they were stirring up the people and they almost got away with it and both of them ended up executed at the hands of the patrician class so quote when Laelius in the presence of the Roman consuls who after condemning Tiberius Gracchus prosecuted all those who had been in his confidence came to ask Gaius Blosius who was Gracchus's best friend how much he would have been willing to do for him he answered everything what? Everything? pursued Laelius. And what if he had commanded you to set fire to our temples? He would never have commanded me to do that, replied Blosius. But what if he had, Laelius insisted. Quote, I would have obeyed, he replied. If he was such a perfect friend to Gracchus, as the histories say, he did not need to offend the councils by this last bold confession, and he should not have abandoned the assurance he had of Gracchus's will. But nevertheless, those who charge that this answer is seditious do not fully understand this mystery, and fail to assume, first, what is true, that he had Gracchus's will up his sleeve, both by power over him and by knowledge of him. They were friends more than citizens, friends more than friends or enemy of their country, or friends of ambition and disturbance. Having committed themselves absolutely to each other, they held absolutely the reins of each other's inclination. And if you assume this team was guided by the strength and leadership of reason, as indeed it is quite impossible to harness it without that, Blosius's answer is, is as it Blosius's answer is as it should have been. If their actions went astray, they were by measure neither friends to each other nor friends to themselves. That to me is the heart of this because it goes back to the friend's duty to the state. What did you think of that? Well, I think he's lying. By the way, you can't. Uh, so first of all, what if you have a dear friend? Just put it in you know contemporary terms. Or what if you have a dear friend? And he asks you to betray something, uh, to commit an injustice. Well, first of all, that means he's not your friend anymore, right? That means you've been, if, if, you, if he purports to be the kind of friend who loves only the good and is disciplined to that, then, you know, you've, you've been wrong, right? You can't do that. And, and uh, that's, so, in other words, the reason this quandary is false is that it violates the terms of the relationship. And, and so, you know, that's what you'd have to say, right? I mean, uh, you know, I have, you know, some friends, close, very close, and for decades, right? What if one of them asked me to help them kill somebody or rob a bank? Well, they wouldn't, right? 
And what if they did? Well, the, the right answer is then I would not, then I would do it. The right, the, the right answer is then I've been wrong about that. But what if they asked you, and this is where I think it's so important, it's about fanatics. What if, the, if your friend persuaded you that the government had gone so badly wrong that we have to make common cause to rebel against it? As, for example, Jefferson Adams and John Jay made common cause to issue the Declaration and a couple of others. I can't remember who, uh, given or more, so you think. Uh, uh, they're friends. They're brothers in arms. They are willing to give, sacrifice their life, liberty, and sacred honor on behalf of that. So they persuaded each other to break the law, right? Well, that's not a phenomenon chiefly of friendship. Uh, that's, you know, friendships are formed by pressures like that. But the question is the right of revolution. Is it proper in these circumstances to exercise it? And that's not a question that's affected much by whether you love some particular person or not. That's, you know, good friends, those particular good friends were very good about reasoning about things like that. And they brought to the reasoning uh, the proper restraint and the clarity of vision and then ultimately the courage to pull off the American Revolution. But it was never a cabal, right? They were, uh, like, if you just read the wonderful Declaration of Independence, right? Uh, These are people who were constantly... uh, you know, the Declaration of says, let facts be submitted to a candid world, right? They weren't doing anything they didn't think they could make an argument for. And, you know, at risk of death, because it was treason, they published that article and signed it, the Declaration of Independence, and sent it to the king. So that was not some private conspiracy. But they, they were friends. I want to I push on this a little bit because you couldn't have gotten to the Declaration of Independence without the pre-existing Virginia friendships of Madison, Washington, and uh, to a lesser extent, some, some minor luminaries, one of whom becomes the Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, and, and the whole Committee of Correspondence. Friends, John Adams, Sam Adams up in Massachusetts, friends are the core of the revolutionary moment, who then become colleagues and com- comrades in arms, and their bonds get forged more. But friends can produce fanatics, is what I'm getting at. Is that yeah? Okay. Well, then, but they won't be reliable friends if they do that. And and these particular friends, you know, uh, John Adams from Massachusetts, he didn't know Thomas Jefferson very well. Where he when he when he maneuvered the Continental Congress into getting, and, and Jefferson, into writing the Declaration of Independence. And he did that of his estimation of Jefferson, and he did that because there was a political, there was a grand strategy point in it. The revolution had been happening in Massachusetts, and people had taken a lot of risks there and suffered a lot of turmoil. You have to remember that uh, the uh, uh, shooting the when british troops saw i can't remember the name for it right now shot a bunch of people in the in the street uh john adams defended the soldiers. boston massacre yeah okay yeah, i couldn't right. think of it either boston massacre he he defended the soldiers in court and got them off and still remained a leader and friend of the revolution right that's a man for all seasons right there but then he and jefferson are very different kind of people 
they, they uh, you know, uh, Jefferson was tall and elegant and cultured and a slaveholder. Uh, John Adams was a little fat guy. Uh, and, and he, they, you know, so they, and, and, you know, one's a northerner, right? A Yankee. One's a southerner. And, uh, the fact that they formed that friendship in the fires of the revolution, and then, of course, the friendship was interrupted for decades. And at the end of his life, I think I've told the story on the show before, it's one of my favorites, uh, Adams is in Braintree, where his, outside Boston, where his family home was, with his neighbors that he'd known all his life. And at the end of his life, he struck up his correspondence with Jefferson again. And, you know, they would write letters to each other in Latin. And, uh, <laughs> like Montaigne. They were learned people. And, uh, and somebody said, one of his neighbors said, to Adams, I'm so glad that you and Jefferson were not, are not enemies anymore. And uh, Adams replied, Mr. Jefferson and I were never enemies. It's just that he wanted to be president, and I was in the way. In the way. <laughs> and, and, and I just, uh, to, to, to stay on Montaigne, because we're going to jump to those guys next week on Federalist 10, I think that every great statesman is better off if they have a friend, as Montaigne had a friend in Le Bautier. And meaning, for example, I think FDR was friends with Harry Hopkins. I think they were the same person in two different bodies. That's basically what he's talking about here, right? Just the same makeup. And I'm not sure Churchill had any equal in friendship. He had. We talked about F.E. Smith, and we talked about Brendan Bracken a couple of weeks ago. But I don't think he had anyone like this, did he? Well, uh, see, about Harry Hopkins, right? He lived in the house with yep. Frank Roosevelt for years, and they were very close. But Franklin Roosevelt was the president, and uh, uh, that means they weren't equals. And uh, so uh, I think you're about to develop a thesis that great friendships begat great political eruptions, and that's an interesting thesis. I guess you're, you're anticipating me, because yeah. then, and then it doesn't work, because that's Federalist number 10. I mean, uh, it, it just doesn't work. You can't, you can't make friendship the aim of your regime, just like you can't want it. Hillsdale to spread all over the country like kudzu, right? Let the audience know that I have heard the suggestion for the first time that we're going to talk about Federalist 10 as a follow-up to friendship on the air today. And it's a cockamamie idea, but we'll do it. We will do it next week. I mean, we will do it, and, and it will be good because, you know, you can recite Federalist 10, can't you? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So I'm not worried about that. Don't yeah. go anywhere, America. I'm coming right back with Dr. Larry. I'm going to wrap up my Frenchman, who he doesn't care for. I wish you just sent me a note and said, I don't like this guy. Why did you spend a year with John Gibbons? And by the way, Bill Crystal read the thesis and he didn't like it either. So there you go. <laughs> I'll be right back, America. I am not surprised, though, a little bit disappointed that Larry Arn doesn't like Montaigne as much as I do. Nobody does. Uh, nobody does. But. The, uh, Donald Frame, who's, who was the great translator of Montaigne, don't read another edition. There are about 5,000 editions of Montaigne out there, and Frame is by far and away the best. Um, so why don't you like, not this essay, why don't you like him, Larry? You've got the best essayist in the country comes up to Hillsdale, Joseph Epstein, every now and then. And it's a form that is underused because nobody prints them anymore, right? 
Yeah, well, uh, yeah, there are essays today, but I, it's not that I dislike Montaigne. It's just that Montaigne, yeah, you know, you got me doing it. Uh, it's just that he 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 is interesting to me chiefly as a way station to something very different from the classics. And I think in our age, the most urgent thing is to go back to the beginning and get your moorings, right? Because everything is, uh, like, you know, we talked last week about that, uh, about the, about the leaked Supreme Court opinion. Well, you can't really have an intelligent opinion about that until you know what kind of thing the Constitution of the United States is meant to be and what are the subjects it, it governs. And then there are distortions in that, right, that, that come from Roe versus Wade and a whole bevy of opinions on many subjects in modern times. Well, you'll never pick your way back through all that to get some sort of sense out of the Constitution unless you know the beginnings. Well, I think that's true about friendship and about every important thing, too, every you know, eternal thing in human relations. And that is the classics just had a lot to say about them. And they're... And see, Montaigne, Montaigne, yeah, when he's writing, he's writing about this one fellow he knew that he loved very much. Well, you know, Aristotle was friends with Plato. Yes, and, yes. And, and he, Plato in, uh, arises in the Nicomachean Ethics with a disagreement with Plato, and he says, we have to prefer the truth for, to our friends. And then, you see... That's what qualified Aristotle to be a friend to Plato. They both thought that, right? And in Montaigne's defense, they're coming out of the religious wars, and and he and and Labodier are skeptics, and they are probably they've probably been living on the razor's edge with uh, the, the Inquisition forever. And he's holed up in Bordeaux in a famous uh, chateau that people can visit, where he would write down all these Greek and Roman quotes. He's a prolific writer, a memory as large as an encyclopedia. He reminds me of Paul, uh, who's your professor right. up there? Yeah, that's, that's who he reminds me. He just knows everything about everyone and can quote things at great length, that like, like Churchill and like Boris Johnson. And he does, but it's all about himself. And it's all about, you can't have what I've got, which is friendship, which I think sets up Madison 10, which is, we're going to build this on self-interest. We're not going to build this on the high and the good. Do you see where I'm going, that, the bridge I built? Yeah. We're going to burn it down now. Yeah, it's useless. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is, by the way, what goes on in the Supreme Court chambers. Well, see, Hugh, I fear that it's not, because I don't know if they're good enough friends for that to go on. Uh, You know, they are. I I really do. I I only know two of them at all and have only met a few of them. And who couldn't be a friend of Clarence Thomas's? Yeah, he... he, uh, I've heard him express affection for Sotomayor, right? And, you know, and Breyers, he just loved that guy. And uh, they disagreed about huge things, right? But they, you know, that's, they're going to be, you know, they all, well, the good ones at least, I don't know them all either, but uh, they understand that they're mortal human beings, right? And they're dealing with enormous issues. And they probably ought not to be having knife fights with each other. And they don't. And they cultivate friendship in all the experience I have with it. And that's what they should do. And they have to, because they're going to be together for, I don't know how long, Justices Scalia and 
Ginsburg overlapped, but it was at least 25 years. And so they went to the opera together, and they dined out together, and they worked at it, because it's the... It's the grease that allows the wheels to spin. It can't be what Montaigne says. It can't be just because it was him, because it was I. That won't work. You can't run a government that way. You know, we have, at Hillside, we have a pretty placid place, right? We get on. We're not fighting all the time. But there have been two that I can remember, votes in the faculty senate, where they voted by secret ballot. And they're both interesting. One of them was very difficult. It was an expansion of the core, and that affects so many interest. Liz, uh, Lynn Cheney said once, it's like moving a graveyard. Oh! Uh, <laughs> it, uh, That's pretty good. It, uh, and so, you know, it came down to the vote, and, and uh, they voted by secret ballot. And uh, I explored this a long time ago. And, you know, in the way Hillsdale College is governed, the Board of Trustees could have done that either way they wanted to, which means effectively I could. But you don't want to use powers like that. Well, they voted the way I wanted them to by, you know, almost three to one. But why did they? And I wondered why. And I asked a couple of them. I said, yeah, we don't want differences with our colleagues over things like this. Amen to that. I'll be back next week for the unprepared Dr. Oren, Federalist number 10. He's never not prepared to talk about the Federalists. Don't believe his protestation. All the Hillsdale Dialogues at Hillsdale.edu. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.